If you please open in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Occasionally on Sunday evenings, we choose our hymns uh, from the congregation. And inevitably, it seems that one of the main themes that arise from those choices are selections such as this. Some golden daybreak. Meet me there. Oh, that will be glory. A mansion over the hilltop. What if it were today? Nearer, still nearer. And my personal favorite, the sands of time. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. All of those songs, and it seems even the song, you know, the songs that we sang this morning, speak of Christ's return. They speak of the believer's entrance into heaven and the joy and the peace of all eternity spent as we worship our Lord and Savior. Paul encouraged the church at Thessalonica this way, 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead and Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Why is it that we like to sing these songs? And why is it that the apostle Paul shared that passage with the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 tells us why Paul shared that passage. He said, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. When we consider the reality and the hope that we have of heaven, with the reality of, of, of passing out of this world with all of its trials and the burden of sin that, we, that, that still Uh, that we struggle against, the the flesh that we struggle against, when we consider entering into heaven, that brings comfort. It brings peace and it brings joy. When life is hard, the world's oppressive, the consideration of another time and another place certainly brings relief. This isn't escapism. That's not what we're referring to. But it is a hope. In James' epistle that we've been considering for some time now, he's writing to brethren, brothers and sisters in the faith, like each of you that have placed faith in, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were facing various trials, James says in James chapter 1. As you face various trials in your faith, of your faith, yet he says, walk wisely. Walk uh, and, and seek after all joy. That's the goal that he's been directing them to all the way through. Last week we began chapter 5. And in the first six verses, James really 
drops the hammer, if you will, on those that he refers to as rich. He describes them as self-indulgent. It isn't merely that they have uh, financial means. That's not what he's condemning. What he's condemning is they're self-indulgent, yet they are miserly. They are unrighteous, unjust. They inflict their their wickedness on, on the just, and they live for themselves. He drops the hammer on them and says, Oh, you are going to weep, and you are going to howl. It is the warning that we see that James gives to, the, to those people, and yet through that warning, he gives encouragement to those that are just. As the Christian walks through this world, how are we to respond to this evil age? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Are we to exact vengeance? Vengeance is mine, I will repay? Is that the right attitude? Or are we to respond with anxiety or fatalism? The answer to each of those, and some which is scripture really twisted out of context, yet scripture that we twist out of context and use just as I've used, the answer to each of those is no. Look at James chapter 5, and let's read verses 7 through 11. Here James is going to tell his readers, this is how you face a hostile world. This is how you wait. For heaven's dawning, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman which waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth hath long patience for it until it receive the early and later rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, Lest ye be condemned, behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord. And the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy." The word that we see repeated throughout that is what? Patience. And so this morning, I'd like to preach a message that I've titled, Patiently Awaiting the Lord's Return. Before I do, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that Jesus told us before he returned to heaven that in this world we will suffer persecution. And yet, Lord, we know that all things work together for good. Them that love God are called according to his purpose. Lord, we are in a world that confronts us and assaults us. And yet, we are serving a king who has overcome this world. Lord, I do pray that you will cause each one of us to consider this passage this morning and to understand what we are called to, and what our attitude day-to-day must be as we walk through this life. Lord, I pray that you would change us and conform us and make us into the image of Christ, who is perfect in all ways. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and to exhibit patience under the coming of the Lord. I pray your blessing on this message and the time that we have to consider your word. In Christ's name, amen.
So let's begin this morning considering patience, what patience is. Patience defined. Now, I looked in the Greek lexicon, and that's like a dictionary, and it defines the word that we're considering here, translated patience, as remaining tranquil, tranquil while waiting, to bear up under provocation without complaint. But as I read down through this passage, I think James, in fact, gives us the best definition. You'll see it in verse 8. He says, establish your hearts. Fix your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now, the tendency of some, when provoked, is to respond with anger. If somebody knocks you on the chin, uh, it, it riles you up, and you want to retaliate. You know, there are many that have that spirit. Yet there are some that respond with fatalism, with passivity. They're just resolved that life is just going to really stink and they're just going to be like a soccer ball that's kicked around wherever it might go. And, you know, it's just kind of, well, the Eeyore kind of life. Oh, well, you know, it's what it is. No. Some are anxious or nervous or stressed out or frustrated. But patience is related to endurance. It manifests resolve to glorify God, come what may. As I thought through the scriptures, I was led to the, the spirit of the three Hebrews as they faced the fiery furnace that Nebuchadnezzar was going to cast them in. They didn't face it with animosity, with anger. They didn't face it with fatalism. They said, we won't do what you're calling us to do. We won't worship your God. But we are going to stand for truth. And though God might not spare us from this furnace, we're still not going to do that. They were patient and enduring. We can consider Christ as well before Pilate. As I thought through the scriptures, this passage, Psalm 56.11 came to mind. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. It has an internal confidence, a strength, a power. It is meekness. It is resolve. It is perseverance. It's all of that mingled together into a life that will glorify God. We'll see it as we go through the examples. The next three, the, the next thing that that this passage reveals to us are three objects first that we're to manifest our our patience with. The first one, you see in the beginning of verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore. This passage doesn't stand in isolation. That word therefore is hearkening us to go back and look at the first six verses. Because the, the rich are going to live self-indulgently and miserly and unrighteously, he is now turns to even more strongly to the, to the righteous man, to the just man, and he says, be patient, brothers, therefore we are to be patient with the unjust. Because the unjust have treated the oppressed as they have. Therefore, be patient. 
There will be those that mock and curse and use us and abuse us. Don't be surprised at this. Listen to these verses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus said, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Patience demonstrates the grace of God to the unjust and lost world. It gives them unmerited favor. When we were yet sinners, we were Christ's avowed enemies, yet he died for us. God gives us grace. And here in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you are to respond to your enemies, not with anger and animosity and hatred and retaliation. He says, love your enemies. Paul said this, Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Dear beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, kick him. No, no, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We see repeatedly in the scriptures, God says how we are to respond to the unjust. It's, it is true that God will exact judgment. It is the same context that we have here in, uh, in James 5. Uh, James says, you know, they're going to act this way. But you respond like this, with patience. What does that mean in real life? You know, as we look at the news, we see this Islamic state. And we see those beheading men in the Middle East. We read in, in Africa and uh, how uh, Christian churches are being burned and uh, pastors are being killed. We see how Christians, uh, uh, mothers and children are being brutalized. How are we to respond to them? Send them a missile. That's not what the scriptures are telling us. We're to respond to evil with good. We're to respond with prayer. It doesn't mean that we accept it, with it, that we say, oh, this is okay, you're our friends, we'll get along. No, that's not what that, that's saying. But it is saying we pray for them. That we exhibit patience with a bully in school. You know, maybe it's not on the world scale. It's somebody right there in your face that treats you and degrades you and mocks you every day as you walk down, up and down the hallways at school. Here it says we're to pray for them. What about our own liberal government and press? Advocating pro, uh, causes that limit our freedom and denigrate our faith, that take prayer out of the school and promote, promote uh, uh, promiscuity and immorality. How do we respond to that? Vote, vote the bums out. Well, perhaps, but we need to pray for them. 
What about to the family that will not have anything to do with us because of our profession of faith? How do we respond to them? I never liked them anyhow. No. We love them. We, we, we give them good instead of evil. We pray for them. I'm trying to come up with some real tangible examples where our response is fleshly. It is to respond with hatred or anxiety or, or, or whatever, but it's not to respond with prayer. It's not to respond with love. It's not to respond with goodness. Those who have despitefully used you and persecuted you, hear the scriptures say, bless them that curse you. You know, that's not something that I find palatable. And it's not probably something that you find palatable either. But it's what the scriptures are leading us to. It's what James is calling for from these people. It's a change in attitude towards the unjust world. Not just those that you find acceptable, but those that you find utterly detestable. How did God view you when you were yet a sinner? Utterly detestable is, is uh, too, far too light of a term. Here, we are to be patient with those that despitefully use us. Secondly, we are to be patient with brothers in Christ. Look at verse 9. Here the scripture, James writes, says, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. That word grudge is better translated, don't grumble, don't complain. You know, we're living in a world that confronts hardship and trials. And sometimes as we are going through our lives and through our own uh trials and temptations we tend to take that out on others that are close to us there are times when we take an offense an offense that was really never attended we allow words that are said to be interpreted in ways that they that the, the speaker never intended them to be taken sometimes when people are discouraged with the fight outside the walls they turn the battle inside and they turn on the ones that love them most. Is it no surprise that the, the old saying is, don't go home and kick the dog? Well, such as the case happens in churches as well. The scriptures are clear that there is not to be animosity among the brethren. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, There should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Christ said, John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And Paul said in Ephesians 4, 32, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You know, problems will come up. And this isn't to say problems should just be glossed over or pushed off to the side or swept under the rug. Matthew 18 has a clear way of dealing with problems. It doesn't say, okay, you've got a problem, so everybody divide up sides, put on the, put on the, uh, the, the uh, gloves and duke it out, and the last one standing wins. No, it says, check your own life. Make sure that you're not at fault. Look in your own eye before you go to take something out of someone else's. 
It says, go to them personally, one-on-one, and address the issue, not accusingly, but compassionately. You know, in my Christian life, so many times, almost the vast majority of the percentage of the times that, that such things come up, when people get together and they actually talk through the issue, the issue is resolved because it was merely miscommunication. 90-plus 90, 90 percent of the time. It says if it doesn't work, then go with two or three. So that those, perhaps, communication issues might be resolved. Uh, and, again, the desire for all the time isn't so that you can get your way, but so that there's restoration, so that you can win your brother And if that doesn't work, then it says bring it to the church and allow the church to decide and allow the, uh, submit yourselves to that decision of the church. Still, the object for all of that isn't so that you can win, but it is so that there can be restoration and unity. Humility and patience is necessary throughout. Be patient with me. And I'll be patient with you. And let's work uh, for God's glory as we, as we serve him here on earth. Be patient with one another. And then finally, thirdly, be patient with the Lord. You see this several times throughout this passage. In verse 7 it says, Be patient, therefore, therefore brethren, under the coming of the Lord. And you see it further down, verse 8, Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. We need to be patient with people outside the walls, people inside the walls, but we need to be patient with our God in heaven as well. We read earlier Luke chapter 12. Let me read it again. Blessed, happy are those servants who the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to me and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second or the come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants when we need to be living each day as if we expect his immediate return. We need to remember that Christ's timing is perfect, that his uh, uh, delay is merely an exhibit of his grace, his long suffering, and his love towards this world that's his creation. His love towards you, who who are obviously not prepared for heaven yet, because he's not taken us there. Christ promised his disciples that in this world they would suffer persecution, but to be of good cheer, because he's overcome the world. The Bible tells us that Christ is going to return, and he is going to uh, uh, catch up his church into the sky to meet them in the air faith, my friends. If you've trusted him for salvation, if you've trusted him uh, and believe in his first coming, why shall we not wait for and trust in his perfect timing in his second coming? He was victorious over sin and death and hell. That should bring us cheer because the scriptures tell us that he is the first fruit of many brethren. And just as he is right now at God's right hand interceding on our behalf, so too will we one day be in his presence. Christ said that it's his will that where uh, that those whom the Father has given him be with him, 
that where he is, there they may be also. We need to be patient. Not begrudging, I can't stand this one more day. I, I hate this place. No, my friends, we need to be patient with our Lord. He gives us three pictures of patience in this passage. The first is the farmer. He says, Behold the farmer, behold the husbandman, or the farmer, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. You know, when you consider a livelihood that demands patience, perhaps farming is uh, really top of the list. Farmers come face to face with a sovereign God day to day. I think one of the, uh, this struck me perhaps most strongly. We read through the Little House books with our kids you've ever done that you understand the ups and downs of farming especially in that day oh they'd have wonderful crops and it was better than they'd had for a long time and then the locusts would come through and wipe it out or there'd be no rain and and they'd have these shriveled up nothings they're dependent on the the grace of god day to day to bring and for their for their lives to be uh, prosperous Every year they're in financial distress, they plan their crops, and everything's looking good, and then the myriad of disasters apparently come overnight. I don't know how people could approach farming without faith, without prayer. The entire process is one that rests on God's sovereign uh, creation and care. When you consider the, the people in Egypt... The Egyptians didn't depend on rainwater per se. They had the Nile River for water. But in Israel, Israel had no such benefit and they depended entirely upon rainwater. And even if you go there today, there are uh, uh, tanks on the, on the roof where they catch the water and they save that water for their, own, uh, for their own uses. There are two rainy seasons, the early rains of the late fall or early winter, they provide groundwater for the early spring growth and for the first harvest. And then there is the late rains of late spring that secure a good summer harvest. The promise of prosperity comes with the rains coming in due season, according to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 4. You see it in, uh, with Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 17, when God withholds the rain and it just decimates that society. Many believe that James is alluding to Joel chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, which say, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the, the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in, in the first month. And the, and the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. In either case, the farmer demands and depends on patience. He plants a seed. He can't wait until it, he can't wait until it rains to plant. He plants a seed and he patiently waits for God uh, to, to, to bring the increase. The second example that James gives us is Job. And I feared when I wrote that up there that people would say, have patience with your job. 
no, that's not what he is intending there. Verse 11, it says, You have heard of the patience of Job. You remember the story of Job? Man that was blessed by God financially, yet a large house and a large family and large flocks and herds. In the eyes of the world, he was a, finan- he was a success. But one day, God asked Satan if he had considered his servant Job. And, and Satan says, If you allow me to take those things away, he will curse you. This is a challenge that God permits, you remember. And, and Satan comes and brings a sore trial on Job. His life was not easy. He took his, his uh, family, he took his flocks and his herds, he even took his health. And he left him with a miserable wife and some miserable friends that did nothing but, but really suppress and press in on him. He had some real spiritual struggles. But Job says, Naked came I into this world, and naked shall I leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The same spirit is found in the Apostle Paul, who sought relief from his own thorn in the flesh. And he said that he, uh, God responded to Paul this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Job's dependent, day to day, he would not curse God and die. He depended on God's grace, and he, though he didn't understand and he didn't have the answers, yet he knew there was a God in heaven, and he sought him, and he desired his intervention in his life without answers. And then finally, the third the third example is the prophets. Verse 10 says, Take my brethren the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of affliction and suffering. As you read through the Old Testament, you read through the lives of the various prophets and all of their oppression, and most of that oppression didn't come from outside of Israel, but from their own brethren. It was those that they should have uh, appreciated them most they ended up appreciating them least. Hebrews chapter 11 says, And what shall we say more? For the time would fail me of Gideon and Barak and Samson and of Jephthah and of David and Samuel and of all the prophets. It says all the great things that they did, but then it says that they uh, escaped the, uh, they were quenched the violence of Fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to fight, flight the armies of aliens. It said, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others have trial of cruel mockings and scourgings and bonds and imprisonment. They were stor- stoned and sawn asunder and tempted and slain with the sword. They wandered in deprivation and sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute and afflicted and tormented. That was the life of the prophets. And yet what does God say of them? All these obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided something for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. It says that the world was not worthy of them, and yet it, it, they, they awaited that hope of the, of, 
of the coming Messiah, of God's intervention in the world. And yet many died, or they all died, not having received the promise of God. We see these three pictures of patience. Men and women who lived a life of patience and perseverance, not to simply be kicked around, but that, but, but that glorified God as they endured steadfastly unto the end, patiently. And with that patience, finally come three rewards of patience. First, you see the word blessing. The King James translates this as happy. The word blessing is, is a, a far uh, better word. It's not merely that they have some emotional giddiness through uh, by God's intervention in their lives. Blessing refers to the favor of God, their approval of God on them. As I came over this morning and was considering this passage even again, I was led to Matthew chapter 5. Listen to this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are them are blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Here Jesus himself in the sermon on the mount and the beatitudes again returns and says Who are the blessed people? Who are those that are going to be happy? It is those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It isn't that we're to be angry or anxious or fatalistic. It's that we're to rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is our reward in heaven. How starkly this stands in contrast to the treatment of those self-indulgent, miserly, and unrighteous people mentioned in the first six verses. Theirs is not the kingdom of God. Theirs is weeping and howling. Paul tells the church at Galatia this way. He says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The first reward of those that are patient You see it throughout the the Beatitudes. You see it there from the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Galatia. And you see it here by James as blessing. Blessing of God. God's favor upon your life. Both here and for all eternity. Secondly, is the word pity. This is also translated as compassion. It's... um, it can also be translated as sympathy or, uh, or compassion, as I said. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 says this, It is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. We sing that same verse. God is faithful to them that endure. He is compassionate. He is he is uh, he will he pities those that will suffer for righteousness' sake. 
the author of Hebrews reminds us that we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but he was uh, uh, tempted in all points, and he he understands your 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 struggles and your um, trials that you face. And yet, the very next verse, he goes on and he says, "Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy." and find grace to help in time of need. God understands our cares and our burdens and will respond with compassion. You have the same picture in John 10 with a good shepherd who protects and cares for his sheep. God is touched with your pain and sorrow and he grieves when you grieve. And yet he's leading you to to those green pastures. And then finally... Tender mercy. Matthew 23, verse 37. The Lord approaches Jerusalem and he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killest the prophets and stonest them which sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. It is in that same verse that that I believe Christ is expressing this, the idea of this mercy. How many times would I comfort you and protect you as under my wings, and yet you would reject those things? Mercy is the sense of being concerned about another's unfortunate state of misery, such as the Lord, the Lord has for us. You see, these words are all very closely related, blessing and compassion and mercy. That's the reward for those that are patient. We live in a foreign land. The Bible calls us aliens. We're citizens, really, of another country. And when we live according to our new nature, this present world will not receive us. In fact, the scriptures tell us it hates us. The natural desire of men of this world is self-indulgence, It takes rather than giving. It kills rather than healing. Your righteousness and your light is an offense to them. The Bible is clear and it makes complete sense that we should suffer persecution. If you're living as you should and reflecting the glory of God to a world that despises the glory of God, what might we expect? Such a life is not easy or simple, but it's preparing you for entrance into your own city. It's preparing you for Emmanuel's land. Don't respond with anger and animosity or fatalism or despair or fear. James tells us to respond with patience. Understanding that the, the, Lord, the coming of the Lord is near. Understanding that we have a hope of heaven. Understanding that we have a hope of compassion and blessing and mercy recognizing that all wrongs will be righted and all pain will be passed, all sorrow turned to joy. Patience, James calls for. As we look at this world, the wisdom demands that we respond with patience, knowing that our goal is not far off. How will you face this world? With, 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 with all the sinful behavior that is so naturally given to our fleshiness or with an eye fixed on our Savior 
as Abraham, as Job, as the farmer, and as the prophets. Let us learn from the example and the admonition of Job or of James this morning. And let us live a life of patience. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, many days, day to day, this world is one that is of great oppression. Lord, there are so many things that distress us and so many things, Lord, that, that um, are contrary to the word of God. Lord, we, 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 we don't accept sinfulness and sinful behavior. Lord, we should respond with righteous indignation. And yet, Lord, we're commanded to love our enemies, to do good to those that despitefully use, you, use us and mock us and scorn us and defame the name of Christ. Lord, we are to stand for truth. And Lord, to be unapologetic in that stand. And Lord, just as the Hebrew children, Lord, to not yield to it in any way. And yet, Lord, we need not respond with anger. We need not respond with with fatalism. Lord, we need only respond with patience. Give us the spirit of Christ, who, Lord, went as a sheep dumb before his shearers. He went as a, a silent to the cross. Lord, enduring the cross and despising the shame. And who is even right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God? Lord, keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Help us to run uh, that, that upward way. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified by our life here on earth. Lord, we look forward to your imminent return. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.